What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast. We are at episode 90 of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast, and I just want to thank all the listeners and subscribers of the podcast. It's been a wonderful journey thus far, being able to interview some really entertaining and exciting guests, and I'm looking forward to producing more compelling content down the road. For episode 90, I'm pleased to be joined by Bob McKenzie. Bob is synonymous with hockey in Canada. He, of course, works at TSN as a broadcaster, reporter, hockey insider. He's semi-retired now, but you can still see Bob breaking news as well as help out with draft and World Juniors coverage. But it's an exciting end of the year for Bob because he has a new book out, Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2, a book that Bob and his co-author Jim Lang wrote about really unique hockey stories. And in this episode, I chat with Bob about this book, writing this book, interviewing some of the players for this book, his strategies of getting some of the players to reveal maybe uncomfortable parts of their story. And I think that this book is really unique because it really paints a picture of hockey culture and how hockey sometimes has not been as inclusive and accepting, particularly to those marginalized groups of people. So Bob certainly wants to shed light on that in in an effort to make hockey more inclusive. And then after we we talk about his book, we, we dive into Bob's sports media career and he provides some Fantastic advice for young journalists to follow, especially those looking to break into the industry. As always, the We Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now, without further ado, it's episode 90 with Bob McKenzie of the We Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, as I said off the top, it is the 90th episode of the We Sports Chronicles podcast, and I'm pleased to be joined by Bob McKenzie. Bob is the author of Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2 with Jim Lane. He's also the semi-retired hockey insider for TSN. Bob, welcome to the 90th episode of the We Sports Chronicles podcast. It's great for you to be here. Well, thanks, Lucas, for having me on. Really appreciate it. It's always great to be number 90. <laughs> right on, right on. It's it, it, it's a momentous occasion. Well, I just want to say congratulations on on the new book. It's something that, you know, re- really, you know, it's, it's, it's a great read. And and maybe we'll start with just, I mean, for, for the listeners who don't know, Bob and Jim wrote Volume 1 of Everyday Hockey Heroes released in 2018. So, Bob, what compelled you to, to, to pick up the phone and, and call Jim and say, I want to write a sequel? Well, in, in, in all honesty, when it was about three years ago right now that uh, Kevin Hansen and Sarah St. Pierre from Simon & Schuster came to me and said, would you be interested in partnering up with Jim, who'd already started work on Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 1? They told me that they had an idea for Everyday Hockey Heroes, they laid out the concept for me. They showed me a couple of sample chapters that Jim had already started working on. One was on Wayne Simmons growing up with economic disadvantages in Scarborough, Ontario, but still making it to the National Hockey League and then going back and giving back to his community 
um, to, to help kids like himself that really couldn't afford to play at the highest level of hockey. Um, another one was on Wayne Pendennis, who was a, a, a man who started the Toronto Ice Owls blind hockey program. And the reason he started it is because he was blind. Mm. And, um, you know, he, he wasn't born blind, but when he was in his late teens, he, um, he went blind. And um, anyway, both stories were really good. I thought they were, Jim did an excellent job sitting down with both, uh, both Waynes in this case and, and telling their inspiring stories. And, you know, it was a famous person, Wayne Simmons, a not-so-famous person, Wayne St. Dennis, and, and uh, I, I was hooked. I liked the idea. And they, they told me at the time that if, if the first book, if every, Everyday Hockey Heroes um, went well, that it might be something that they would want to come back and do every couple of years to a new volume. And so, sure enough, here we are. Volume 1 went well, so here we are with Volume 2, and it's going well so far. Um, I don't make the decision on whether there's going to be a volume three, but I sure wouldn't be surprised. Well, there's so many stories to choose from, and, you know, in terms of everyday hockey heroes. So I'm just curious, Bob, what makes the sequel, you know, different and in certain ways, you know, better than the original? Well, that's always for the reader to decide, but I, I don't know. It's just that we've got a wide variety of, of people in the book that really are a cross-section of um, hockey culture, I think. And um, so, you know, chapter one's about uh, uh, two black players who grew up in Scarborough, Ontario, uh, playing minor hockey there in, in a quite white Scarborough in the 1960s. Um, there's the story of Joey Gale, who was a closeted gay youth playing hockey in Minnesota, who was pushed away from the game because the culture wasn't welcoming to him. Um, until he finally came out and gave hockey another try later on and was, had a much better success with it. Um, his second time around, um, Jessica Platt's story as a transgender athlete um, is, is a, absolutely just a huge emotional impact, but so enlightening and illuminating what the whole transgender experience is all about. But there's plenty of, you know, Andrew Cogliano's Iron Man streak and how it came to an end and how he felt about that and the values and the virtues that he's um, personified his whole life and his whole career. Um, Joey Hishon, Colorado Avalanche first round pick going through major concussion problems that might have otherwise derailed his hopes for an NHL career. And while it didn't last as long as he would have liked it to, um, he still fought through it all and, and managed to score a goal in the National Hockey League. So all the stories come from different swaths and, and cross sections of life in hockey and um i think they serve as a role for they, they can serve these stories can serve as role models for people who might also look at this story or that story and say hey that's that, that's me i that could be me um and and these people have inspired me with their stories um but also it, it could be just somebody like myself an older white male who may be I wouldn't say is willfully ignorant, but at times in their life maybe is blissfully ignorant that there are people that have been pushed out onto the margins of hockey culture and not accepted simply because they were a little bit different for one reason or another, and that maybe this is an opportunity for them to realize there is a problem 
um, with inclusivity and diversity in the game of hockey and maybe do something about it along the way. You, you mentioned some of the stories of, you know, trying to highlight hockey culture from, from a process standpoint for you and Jim. How challenging was it to get these certain interview subjects to, to feel comfortable in, in revealing some of the more difficult parts of their, their hockey experience and journey? Yeah, that, that's a, the beauty of being on a, our Everyday Hockey Heroes team. So we've, we've got Sarah St. Pierre, who's the editor, and I always call her the soul and the conscience mm-hmm. of the book because I think it was her in, in the publishing circles that really sort of advanced the idea of everyday hockey heroes being something broader than just a story about hockey players, um, that it had a more universal application, that you don't need to be a hockey fan to read these stories and be inspired by them. It certainly helps. And, and uh, if you are a hockey fan, absolutely. But um, there's a universality to these stories. And um, so Sarah's really good at, setting the whole tone for the book and and jim is really comfortable in getting people to feel comfortable doing interviews transcribing those interviews putting it in in a coherent thought process and sarah you know polishes up all our writing to to make it um better than what we we started out with and so it's that's the the, that's the key that the secret sauce to this thing is that sarah and jim are so good at dealing with people and making them feel comfortable to tell some really hard stories. No, it wasn't easy for Jessica Platt to tell that story. It wasn't easy for Joey Gale to tell that story. Um, It's not easy for people to talk about things in their life that maybe were difficult and they had to push through. Um, But a lot of the subject matters in this, uh, in this book have done exactly that. Well, I mean, Interviewing is a skill that that any journalist has to has to possess, and and a lot of my listeners are younger journalists getting into the industry. And and look, I mean, interviewing takes a long time to to, to develop to perfect. And I think you know you need experienced people like Jim to, to be able to you know know what it takes to, to get an interview subject to feel comfortable. Because yeah, I mean, you, you want to be able to reveal compelling parts of their narrative. Yeah, no doubt about that. And Jim's really prolific. He's written a ton of books. Um, and so he, he, and he's a great people person too. Um, and so that really, really helps a lot. So the, the, as I said, the process for the whole thing was really, for me, really gratifying to be a part of. So, you know, I think it was probably what would have been a year ago, August, myself, Jim and Sarah sat in a boardroom at Simon Schuster in Toronto. And we basically just came armed with ideas. I think this person should be in it. I think this person's story should be in it. And we each came with a bunch of names. And then it's a matter of just, you know, the challenge isn't getting enough stories to fill the book. The challenge is cutting down Hmm. the number of really good stories that which ones are you going to include, which ones get left on the cutting room floor, so to speak. And so you go through that process before you've spoken to anybody. And the list, obviously, it's like a life of its own, it grows, it shrinks, it, you know, this person comes on to it, this person comes off of it, whatever the case may be. And there are some people, you know, there are some people you want them to tell their stories and for one reason or another, they're not comfortable to do so. 
um, and you try to convince them that sometimes uh, you can't, and and that's fair. That's their stories, it's their truth, and they get to tell it when when they want to tell it and how they want to tell it. But in the meantime, you get 15 to 17 really interesting people who are prepared to tell their stories and to have Sarah and Jim and myself um, as the vehicles to, to get those stories told. So just to follow up on that, how do you, like, what's the process then to, to sort of whittle it down to, to, to get the the number of stories that, that you included in, in, in volume two of everyday hockey heroes? Well, I mean, it's kind of an organic process. You don't really go into it with a lot of, you know, specific needs. Uh, you, you basically, you know, you want to make sure you cover off a lot of aspects of, of, of the hockey community. So, you know, I don't think you necessarily go into it saying, well, we have to have a gay person or we have to have a transgender person or we have to have uh, somebody who's, uh, who's, who's uh, in a wheelchair or, you know, we have to have a black person or whatever. Um, but you want to make sure that the book is representative so that, so that when somebody picks it up, you know, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, whether you're LGBTQ, whether you're indigenous, person of color, um, whatever the case may be is, and, and, and not just in terms of the, the brands or the, 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 the labels that we attach to people, but, you know, various aspects of the game. So, you know, I wanted, I wanted there to be something in there for, 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 people or kids or players that have had concussion issues in hockey. So we wanted to tell Joey Hishon's story um, of suffering a traumatic brain injury and being able to come back from it. Um, I wanted something in there that reflected what I would call old-time values, uh, uh, most virtuous values of old-time hockey culture, which is, is you know, dedication, teamwork, commitment, sacrifice, um, um, you know, and Andrew Cogliano represented all those and personified all of those in in putting together his NHL Ironman streak that was taken away from him not by an injury or an illness, but by a suspension. But um, so so I, I think we wanted to just make sure that the cross section was really wide, and that it covered a lot of aspects of uh, of gender and the color and virtually everything that you know the hockey community reflects you mentioned you know chapter one and that's of course terry mercury and Lindbergh gonzalez two two black players who you, who you came across with you know in your time playing minor hockey and i guess bob for you like maybe walk through the listeners just how you were able to to secure those two interviews because i think you know so far removed from your minor hockey days to then be able to to sit almost 50 years after the fact and, and have a, you know, a conversation with these, with these two athletes. Yeah. I was given a lot of thought to um, after volume one of everyday hockey heroes, I was given a lot of thought what was going to be the signature chapter for me that I write. Um, what was it going to be about? Who was it going to be about? And I started giving a lot of thought to that and I, a couple of different directions I could have gone. And I started thinking about the Wayne Simmons chapter in, in volume one. And, you know, Wayne Simmons, of course, uh, a, a black player from Scarborough. I'm from Scarborough. He's from Scarborough. 
Um, now, I should point out that Wayne is one of 10 black players mm. who have gone from, who grew up playing hockey in Scarborough to play in the National Hockey League. And I, I think far and away that would be, Scarborough is probably the community that's put more black players in the National Hockey League than any other community. And I started thinking about where I grew up in Scarborough. And obviously I'm older than Wayne. So the Scarborough I grew up in was quite white. Mm-hmm. And there was, um, I mean, you know, there were some black players when I played, but not very many. And so I started thinking about, hmm, um, I should maybe try to track down some of those guys that I played against, black players, and compare and contrast their minor hockey experience in Scarborough of the 60s with mine. Mm-hmm. And there were two players that I remembered in particular that I played against. I did not know them personally. I just knew of them. And I knew them because A, they were black in a mostly white game. B, because they were really good players. Um, I wasn't that good. I was in the lower end of the food <laughs> chain. These guys were in the upper echelon of the 1956 birth year playing hockey in Scarborough and the, the, the greater metropolitan Toronto area at the time. And I also remember them because they had memorable names, Terry Mercury and Lindbergh Gonzalez. <laughs> and, um, Terry was really, he was easy to remember. I think in peewee hockey, he was well over six feet tall. He's six foot three now, but he was, had to be six feet tall in peewee hockey, which made him stand above the crowd. Um, Lindbergh Gonzalez was much smaller. In fact, I think he's only now five, seven, five, eight, 160 odd pounds, but I think he was the same height and weight in peewee. <laughs> he was unbelievably athletic and a uh, tremendous player and a fearsome to play against. Um, and so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting, given all that's gone on with race and hockey over the last number of years, to go back and try and track these guys down and talk to them about their experiences versus my experiences. And um, so that's what I did. And uh, Terry was pretty easy to find because he's in broadcasting. And uh, Jim Lang had his email address because he works over at SiriusXM and does a lot of work. And Lindbergh wasn't too hard to find because um, – he, he was a referee in minor hockey, and uh, when my kids were playing in the early 2000s, I was at a tournament in Toronto, and I saw a black referee doing a, a, a tournament game and had Gonzalez across the back, and I said, wow, that must be Lindbergh Gonzalez, the kid I played against when mm-hmm. I was uh, 9, 10 years old. And uh, so I, I was able to track them both down and sit down with them, and uh, the result is, is what we put in chapter one of the book. Well, it's a fantastic chapter, and I think it speaks to something that you mentioned earlier about the you know these guys being role models, especially in a year like 2020, where hockey has you know had to have hard conversations about inclusivity and acceptance and diversity and race, especially as we saw in the Edmonton bubble with Matt Dumba taking a knee, the the two day pause. So I guess for you, Bob, I mean, like, do you think that the way that that, that you wrote their story and the way, you know, some of the answers that they provided, like, do you see this providing a vehicle to, to, to be, you know, inspiration or role models for, for younger black players coming up right now playing hockey? I think they absolutely could be for sure. Um, they, they would be, you know, and, and to think, you know, because so many black players have made it from Scarborough to the national hockey that these guys didn't, and, and part of the, the chapter talks about, you know, might they otherwise have made a career in pro hockey 
if not for some of the, the racism that they personally experienced. Each of them had very similar experiences. I, I found it really interesting that, um, that both Terry and Lindbergh, when they were very young, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, um, they, they sensed no racism whatsoever, that they were well accepted by their teammates, by their opponents, by their coaches, and, and what have you. And they felt like, you know, to use the NHL slogan, hockey is for everyone, that they, they felt that was the case. And they just had an unbridled love for the game, and they thought it was great. But it didn't take very long for racist tendencies to be imbued in their, in their, in their life. And, and when each of them were at the age of 14 or 15, um, they really had their passion for the game sort of robbed from them mm-hmm. in large part because they, and oftentimes it was, each of them experienced the same thing. And that was the lack of acceptance from their own teammates. Um, which if you think about you know, 14, 15 year old kids and they're real good hockey players and, and they just found themselves losing their passion for the game because they weren't being accepted by their teammates. So, you know, I don't know if they would have made the NHL or not, but, you know, they they asked themselves that question. And so, yeah, I think there's absolutely a, a provision there for them to be role models. And so they're certainly pioneers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mike Marzen was a year, was born in 1955, a year before myself and Terry and Lindbergh. And, of course, Mike Marzen went on to be a first round pick in the national hockey league and play for the Sudbury Wolves in the OHL. But next to Willie, O'Ree, he was number two behind Willie O'Ree in terms of breaking the collar barrier in the national hockey league. And he, he broke it for more, certainly more games and years than, than Willie in the fifties. Um, so yeah, the, and it's funny because as it turns out, Terry is second cousins with Wayne Simmons, which <laughs> is a, a little bit of, uh, you know, symmetry there too. But, um, it's a fascinating story for sure. You mentioned earlier how you wrote part one of the book, you know, at the end of last year. And then, you know, I believe it was in the acknowledgements. Part two was actually written during the COVID-19 pandemic during the, the lockdown, which, which many of us experienced. So I'm just curious for you, Bob, like what challenges did that present? If any, being able to, to write a book, you know, amidst, uh, amidst the global pandemic. Well, it's funny. The idea of doing chapter one with Terry Mercury and Lindbergh Gonzalez, I started formulating the idea in, in, uh, in well, around a year ago right now, actually. Mm. but I didn't, I didn't actually get them tracked down until into the new year. Mm-hmm. And by the time I tracked Terry and Lindbergh down, um, you know, the, I, I started setting up the interviews and it was, it's really weird the way it worked out. Uh, I was, it was March. And I had these interviews set up for March and it was like right at the time that all hell broke loose on the pandemic front, which was the, that, you know, I think it was March 12th, 13th, mm-hmm. thereabouts. Um, you know, the, the interviews were set up prior to that, but in the week after that. And so it did present some unique challenges, but I was able to do socially distance interviews with both guys, which was great. And, and that, but to your point, the vast majority of this book was written. Um, the, most of the stories that Jim had, had written, most of the work was done before the pandemic. Mm. 
blossomed or, or you know hit hit the way that it did in in mid March. Um, so the book was kind of devoid of any mention of COVID nineteen, and so when I was writing the introduction for the book, I thought it was going to be really important to try to weave that in, and so that that's where you know I, I tell the story a little bit of Suleiman Ahmed, um, who with his wife Khadija Kaji, um, couple that lives in Markham with three kids, who basically were the the originators and founders, co-founders of the the Contra COVID movement mm-hmm. that did such an amazing mm-hmm. job through March, April, May, June, and July to get so much PPE, had PPE drives all across Canada, um, and to help the medical people all across Canada so much. But to talk about Suleiman's story or the story of Suleiman's family, um, framed against the, the pandemic, but also an immigrant family comes to Canada and with this incredible immediate passion and love for the Montreal Canadians. And Suleiman's mom um, is the, like the biggest diehard Montreal Canadian fan you've ever seen. Guy Lafleur is, is her hero. And she's now a doctor in Windsor, Ontario. And there's an autographed Guy Lafleur picture on, on the wall. So um, I, I thought that was a way that we could weave in you know, a, a sense of what was going on in the world with the pandemic, um, but also stay true to the idea of this is a, an inspiring story of people who first and foremost have an incredible passion for hockey, but then tell a story that, as my friend Suleiman would say, lifts people up. Mm-hmm. And uh, Suleiman and his family are all about inspiring people and, and lifting them up. And, and that story in the introduction for me was a story that lifted me up. I love that quote, lifting people up, because it's interesting how, I mean, you release volume one, I mean, right around after the Humboldt Broncos bus crash, you you release, you know, volume two during the, during the pandemic. And I think the concept of, you know, hockey being, you know, uh, you know, escapism and, and, you know, trying to, you know, come together as a community has certainly been, challenge because i mean during the pandemic you you can't come together in person so i'm just curious how in, in writing this book how the notion of hockey having a healing and inspiring power during crisis has been reaffirmed for you through through a lot of the, the stories that you've been able to tell well it is but it's also what i would call the double-edged sword so mm. yeah it is reaffirming in a positive sense but it's also cutting in the really negative sense. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, case in point would be the story of Joey Gale, um, you know, a closeted um, gay um, teenager in Minnesota who's playing hockey, and he's, he's not felt comfortable in revealing to the world who he is, his friends, his family. They don't know that he's gay. Um, he plays hockey. His teammates don't know that he's gay. And he tells the story of how, he just didn't feel comfortable in, in the hockey culture, in the hockey environment on his own team with his friends because there, there was homophobia. Now, some of it was what I would call, uh, I don't want to say inadvertent homophobia, but there's certain terminology and language that's been part of hockey culture for a long time mm-hmm. that nobody ever really gave a thought to in terms of this is hurtful to somebody, you would just say it, um, and, and that was that. 
Um, but then you find out that it is offensive to, mm-hmm. to gay people or LGBTQ community. Um, and then there is overt homophobia in the game. There's no doubt about mm-hmm. that. And a combination of those two things, you know, some players using language that made Joey Gale feel uncomfortable and some players actually being overt with their homophobia, um, he, he felt he had to pull away from the game mm-hmm. um, and, and didn't feel comfortable. And it wasn't until he went to university and he decided to come out to his family and friends that he wanted to give hockey. He loves hockey so much that now as a gay man, he wanted to give hockey another try, which he did. And he announced his return to men's hockey by using pride tape on his stick and showing up for an all-star men's league all-star game um, with with pride tape, with the rainbow colored tape. That's the symbol of the LGBTQ community. And you know, somebody said, hey, what's with the gay tape? And his response was, oh, well, that's mine. It's because I'm gay. And he was proud of it. Mm-hmm. And what he found was that he was much, he was well embraced and well accepted by his teammates and everybody. And he didn't get any sense of any homophobia um, with in the men's league that he was playing in and how welcoming that was for him. So, yes, that's a reaffirming positive story. Mm-hmm. But it's also got... The, the double-edged sort of negativity and mm-hmm. the cutting edge of that sword, which th- there was a toxic atmosphere in the culture that pushed him away from mm-hmm. the game in the first place. And so we want to try to get to a, a point in time where people aren't pushed away from the game simply for being different. That if you, it doesn't matter whether you're black, indigenous, person of color, LGBTQ, whatever the case may be, if you have an undying passion for the game of hockey, but you're perceived to be different for some reason. You shouldn't be pushed away mm-hmm. because of that. And and that's where we need to get to. And that's why a lot of these stories are inspiring is because there was an affirmation that even after some of these people were pushed away, that on the second go around, they were well accepted. It would be nice to get to the spot where there is no first go around where they get pushed away. No, for sure. Really, really well said. I, you know, I really hope we can, we could get to that place, Bob. I want to shift gears in in, in the last uh, you know few minutes of our of our talk to just chat a bit about your career and and you know you've had various different stops along the way: St. Marie Star, Toronto Star, Hockey News, TSN. And in doing research for this interview, I I, I came across a, a piece that Sean Fitzgerald wrote about you for the National Post at the time, where. If the hockey news hadn't offered you, you know, the job of editor in chief, you would have become a policeman. And it's interesting because I've had a lot of guests on the show, and 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 they talk about that sort of crossroads moment in their career very early on, where you know if they didn't get an opportunity, they didn't get that you know first job or, or whatever, they would have you know probably left the industry. So I'm just curious. I mean, as you know, younger journalists are getting into the industry, just if you could speak to just the importance of just keeping going and keep grinding for those opportunities, because, you know, in the case of the hockey news for you, it really, you know, laid the groundwork and the foundation for a very successful career. Yeah, it's funny. And, and the, you know, the, that was a hundred percent true that if I hadn't gotten the job as editor in chief of the hockey news, I was thinking seriously of getting out of journalism and going and, signing up to be a Metropolitan Toronto policeman. Um, I look back on it now, though, and I think to myself, 
wow, what a naive putz I was. <laughs> to think that, to think, I, I graduated journalism school in 1979. Um, well, I quasi graduated. <laughs> that's, that's another story for another day. Although I did go back and get it. Um, but when I left Ryerson in April of 1979, I already had a full-time job at the Sioux Star in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario work in the sports department and I was there for the better part of two years um, the economy wasn't great at the time and my wife with me my, in Sault Ste. Marie couldn't get work in Sault Ste. Marie Algoma Steel was on really tough times and the Sioux was a really tough times there in the, the late 70s early 80s um, and plus my goal was to try and get closer to home and home for me was Toronto um, and so I was trying desperately to get back to home base, Toronto area, and I wanted to be a hockey writer. And so for me, I expected if I was going to be a hockey writer, I needed to get hired by the Toronto Globe and Mail, Toronto Sun, or the Toronto Star. And I, I think back how naive I was now to think, and it was a sign of the times too, but to think you could graduate from journalism school in, 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 19, in the spring of 79, and by the summer of 1982, be ready to quit journalism because you hadn't realized your dream of being a beat reporter in the National Hockey League. I mean, people now would say, give me a break, you got to serve a lot more time and go through a lot more than that to, um, to, to do it. So, um, but nevertheless, I got the job at the Hockey News as editor-in-chief at the age of 25 which is pretty remarkable in and of itself. And that kind of paved the way and opened the doors for everything else that I've done since then. And one of those things, of course, is, you know, be, being, you know, one of the leading hockey insiders in, in Canada. And, and I find that term insider, I feel like it's a bit overused now, especially in the social media age where anyone can literally coin the phrase, you know, on Twitter, oh, I'm, I'm an insider. But I think what makes you, you know, so special and such a leader over these years is the importance of being right not necessarily being the first one to break the news or break the transaction but being right especially you know now in 2020 with all the misinformation that can exist on social media how important is is that for young journalists whether it's breaking news or writing stories to be 100 percent right yeah the whole insider thing is kind of funny because it's um it's it's evolved, devolved over time, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Um, but here's the thing. Yeah. He, he, I always remember the, uh, one of the very first things I learned at journalism school and it always kind of stuck with me. I, we had a, an instructor and his name was Monroe Buck Johnson. <laughs> and Buck was his nickname. And he was like your real old school newspaper guy. And um, so the very first day of journalism school, the first assignment where you go into the class and he says, okay, you've, you've got to write your own obituary. Mm -hmm. And so even though you're not dead, so, you know, everybody would write their own obituary. And, and so somebody actually, I think actually spelled their own name incorrectly. In, in their own obituary and, <laughs> and he made the point he goes he goes it's bad enough you make a spelling mistake period but to make a spelling mistake of your own name you only get 
so many opportunities to present to people that you can be trusted and that you're that you're you're reporting and your your information is factual and correct and he goes you don't want to lose the trust of your reader by making silly mistakes or any mistakes for that matter your mistakes happen that's life but you really need to it always stuck with me that you know a simple spelling mistake could be what separates you from your reader and that person says well if they can't even get my name right why should i talk to them if i can't even get my you know, or they can't get that person's name right and everybody knows that it's spelled like that why should i trust anything else they said that always kind of stuck with me the other thing that stuck with me on that exercise by the way is most of the people who wrote their own obituaries decided that you know they were dying in some spectacular fashion <laughs> and, and 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 buck would immediately um castigate them for saying listen if you died in a fiery plane crash with famous people on board that wouldn't be an obituary that would be a news story and you just <laughs> wanted your obituary and so it was a good exercise the very first day of of ryerson journalism school and i, I always remember that so so for me it was just a matter of I want to be first, but I want to be right. And, and, and even now the job has evolved with so many people having social media and having the ability and the vehicle to, to break news and to have information first and, and unchecked and unedited. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that social media is really taken away from. In the old days, you work for a newspaper in order for your story to get in print, it would have to go through a copy editor. It would have to go through another another editor on top of that so people there would be rigorous fact checking for everything that you you did well social media there's no rigorous fact checking it's like oh i've got some information i've got my phone here we go i'm going to tweet it out there and boom it's done and then all of a sudden you tweet it out and you're like <clears throat> oh just made a spelling mistake there uh, twitter doesn't have an edit button <laughs> i gotta delete that tweet i gotta fix it and then all of a sudden you get a phone call with more information and someone tells you, no, what you reported is not, not right now, it's changed. And you're like, oh, okay, now I got to do that. So, so for me, the, it, it's not so much being first or even just being right, but you, you better have some insight on top of all that other basic information um, that separates you from everybody else. Because quite frankly, now the way the business has gone, if you do get a scoop, it lasts for about two minutes if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you better have the wherewithal to be able to paint a real picture and the insight to provide to people on what this means as opposed to just here's the information. A few years ago, Dave Schultz of the Globe and Mail wrote a piece about you and, and, and you mentioned in that article that the hard thing about the job description I've got now is there's no such thing as being semi-retired, end quote. And it's so funny that you make that point a few years ago because this summer you're, you're semi-retired and I see you on the, you know, Twitter breaking news and, and doing your, you know, your insider things. So I guess, Bob, I mean, maybe just provide the listeners of just how much when you were like working for TS, like how much of a grind being an insider was. And do you think like, like, can you just like ever like leave it behind because it, because it feels like it's like the Godfather, right? Once you think you're out, they'll, they'll pull you back in. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack on that one, on all of this. So what I would say is this, um, 
first off, I always used to say of, of my job as insider or reporter or anything else, um, there's no heavy lifting and it's all indoors, um, <laughs> which is to suggest you can do it for a good long time and it's not going to break down your body. It's, it's not back-breaking physical labor um, and you're not going to get too cold or work out in the elements. So I would never expect anybody, if I say, well, it's a hard job, I wouldn't expect to get much sympathy from somebody who actually does have to go out and do physical labor and deal with the elements and, and what have you year round. Um, but it's, it's taxing from the point of view that it's, it evolved into a 24 seven job because of social media. Um, and it, it just got to the point where if you're a social function, you can't be fully engaged in that social function or a family function. Um, you know, kid's birthday party, whatever the case may be, or like somebody's wedding, you're never divorced. <laughs> Bad pun to use with a wedding <laughs> analogy. But you can't just turn your phone off and say, I'm going to forget about everything because your employer and, and your audience expects you to have some information or knowledge about what's going on here. So it's hard to do that. And, and to the point where when I talked to Schultz in that story, you can't be an insider on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or you can't be an insider on, um, uh, I'm going to just work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, either watch all the games and talk to all the people and try to get a sense of what's going on all, all the time, or you don't. And so now people might say, well, you're semi-retired. How do you do that? The reality is, I'm more an outsider than an insider now, in mm -hmm. all honesty. Um, the work that I have to do on my new contract for TSN is is work that for me has a start line and a finish line. Mm -hmm. I know exactly the days I'm working and the hours I'm working. And now when I go to my son's house and visit my two grandkids, if I want to leave the phone in the car, I can leave the phone in the car. I don't because I usually take pictures of my grandkids, <laughs> but I'm not constantly looking at Twitter or text messaging or worrying that I'm getting beat on a story or something's happening, I should be chasing that down. I can be much more in the moment, which I never could before. And that's the biggest difference for me. So I'm, I'm going to be real busy this month, this World Junior Month. All things being equal, on December 19th, I'm flying to Edmonton to go into quarantine for four days and then into the bubble for the World Junior Championships. And so I'm going to be, you know, December is a real busy month for me. Um, I'm not retired this December, but I know exactly what I'm working on um, for the World Juniors. And um, I don't have to worry about when the NHL starting up. That's not my, that's Darren Dreger, Pierre Lebrun, Frank Cervalli will take care of that. Um, I'm doing the World Juniors and that's going to be my focus. So, so that's how I can split the, uh, the difference between being an insider versus being semi-retired. Last question for you, Bob. You mentioned the World Juniors. Here's hoping that it that it, that it does happen. You know, in your in your years covering that event, what's been your favorite moment that stands out for you? Uh, that's a good. There's just too many to even pick one, I guess. But um, the the Ottawa World Juniors, and whether like, I get the years mixed up, 2008, 2009, whatever it was. That was a really cool World Juniors because the building was sold out for not just for Canada's games, but pretty much all the games all the way through Ottawa did such a great job of hosting that event. 
and and that was a, one of the better New Year's Eve games we've ever had at the World Juniors, where Canada fell behind three nothing, and the building to the Americans and the building was absolutely shell shocked, and um, and then John Tavares got the uh, got the hat trick and they Canada roared back and and that was a really emotional game and that was also an emotional tournament because in the semifinals, of course that was the moment. Can you believe it? Yeah. Um, when uh, when Jordan Everly scored, you know, a, a logic-defying tying goal to send Canada to overtime against the Russians in a game that was the Russians for the taking, and uh, and of course they won it in overtime and went on to beat the Swedes in the uh, the gold medal game. That was a that was pretty spectacular. But there have been so many moments for me in the World Juniors, I just can't even begin to to, to count them all. Bob McKenzie is the author of Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2. If you're looking for a holiday gift, this is the perfect book for you. I highly recommend it. Bob, it was an absolute honor and privilege to speak with you today on the 90th episode of the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Awesome. Thanks very much for having me, Lucas. Really appreciate it. To all your listeners and everybody else, uh, have a great holiday season coming up.